1: Their names are some of the most legendary in the history of tennis. Guys like Connors, McEnroe, Agassi. Between them, they won 23 Grand Slam events, with Jimmy Connors and Andre Agassi topping the list at eight apiece, and John McEnroe following with seven. When the fiery Connors or McEnroe took to the court, It was almost appointment television. And as electric as they were, as great as they were, and for as long as they played, none of them matched the career marks of the man who just might be the greatest American male tennis player of all time. A quiet champion the guy who won more Grand Slam events than anyone until he was surpassed first by Roger Federer and then Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of the greatest careers in tennis history, the career of Pete Samuels. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular
2: careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan.
1: Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 100, Pete Sampras. Truly, one of the greatest athletes to ever play tennis. Yes, athlete. Playing tennis at the world-class level is nothing to sneeze at. And Sampras did it better than anyone else during his era and perhaps in the history of the game when it comes to comparisons of other great American male tennis players. And that includes the likes of Bill Tilden, Don Budge, Arthur Ashe, Rod Laver, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Andre Agassi, anyone. He was that good. Where Sampras runs into an issue when it comes to arguing who was the greatest of them all is this. He didn't play for an extended period of time, just 14 years. He never won the French Open. He wasn't fiery. He didn't have that kind of personality. Many thought of him as a robot. He just went out and won and wasn't very boisterous or vocal about it. And his reign as the all-time leader And Grand Slam victories was quite short. And we're going to get into all of this with my guest today, Steve Flink, who recently released a terrific book, Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited. Steve is a lifelong fan of the sport and has made his passion for the game of tennis his occupation, as he has written about the game for decades. Steve and I had a great conversation about Pete, from Pete's early days and how he was shaped into the champion he became, to his rivalries with Agassi, Jim Courier, and Michael Chang, to the kind of game he played, and a lot more. Now, before we get into my discussion with Steve, just a few notes for you. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is where you can go to find several podcasts about sports history. A lot of great content for your listening pleasure. Also, don't forget to follow this podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes, on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook as well. I make daily and weekly posts on all of these platforms. More information on stats of the stars of yesteryear, the stars I talk about, and it's where you can see some pretty cool pictures of everyone as well. And of course, check out sportsfh.com for more information on the forgotten heroes I talk about, more information about my guests, and if you have a question, comment, or an idea, For a Forgotten Hero you would like to know more about, just fill out the contact form and I will certainly reach out back to you. Again, that's sportsfh.com. As always, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. And of course, thanks for listening. Now, Pete Sampras... He was the most dominant tennis player of his time, and his time wasn't that long ago. But his reign as the man who had won the most Grand Slam events was. Sampras won Wimbledon seven times, the U.S. Open five times, and the Australian Open twice. That's 14 Grand Slam singles wins. And here to talk about Pete is my guest, the author of the new book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, Steve Flink. And joining me now is Steve Flink. Steve, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes.
2: Warren, it's great to be on your show. Looking forward to it.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Hey, so Pete Sampras, he's quite the interesting subject Um, And we'll get into it in a little bit. Um, I I think his reign as the all-time leader in Grand Slam Tournaments 1 with 14 was so short that it really affected his legacy. He was passed in such a short period of time that I think that many sports fans, um, you know, they just don't remember Pete the way they should.
2: Well, that's one of the main reasons, Warren, that I wrote the book is that I felt the timing was right. You had a lot, you had this prodigious trio of Federer and Nadal and Djokovic who all passed Pete. And uh, you're so right. I mean, Pete, won his 14th in, at the 2002 U.S. Open, beating Agassi in the finals of the U.S. Open, last match he ever played. So there he was, leaving the game with 14. It was inconceivable that anybody would pass him for a long, long time. But Federer did as early as 2009.
1: It's crazy. at Wimbledon
2: <laughs> with, with, Sampras, with Sampras present, by the way, in the stands, along with Bjorn Borg and some other luminaries, watching Federer beat Andy Roddick to win Wimbledon that year. So it's remarkable to think that that record only held up for seven years. But you you touched on a crucial point. I believe that fans should understand that in some ways his era was a more difficult era to dominate because of the varying playing styles, because he had to come up against really aggressive big servers like Becker and Krychek and Ivanicovic and because there were then you had the, the great baseliners like Agassi and Chang and there was so much diversity out there uh, more so than is it is the case today plus uh, he he was number 1 for six straight years from 93 to 98 none of the big 3 now have managed to pull off that feat of 6 years in a row at the top and you have to look at the overall scope of somebody's career and who they competed against. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I believe he still very much belongs in that conversation with these three and other all time greats like Rod Labor.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, two other guys that you wrote a lot about in the book, um, guys that I don't think get their due as well. And we're not going to get deep into their stories, but. Jim Courier and Michael Chang.
2: What 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 struck you about Courier and Chang about their stories? Tell me what. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, that
1: that they were the uh, you know such rivals with oh yeah with yeah. Sampras, and when you look back at their careers today, um, they don't get the. I don't think they get to the, do it. Particularly Michael Chang. I don't think he gets the recognition he deserves or is remembered the way he should be remembered.
2: No, I think you're right in more than in both cases. Courier won four majors in a three-year span from 91 to 93. He won a couple of Australians, a couple of French Opens, and reached the finals of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. It was a remarkable career that was somewhat impeded, perhaps by overtraining. He's the only one that would know. He probably should have lasted a little bit longer at or near the top, but it was pretty spectacular while he was, in that dominant mode prior to Sampras taking over the leadership role. And then Chang was just the quintessential competitor, Warren, throughout his career and a, really, a real credit to the profession. He was the youngest French Open winner he, when he won it in 1989. It, uh, he, he doesn't get his due, I agree. But <laughs> the main reason is that Sampras won 14 majors, Andre Agassi, who, of course, was the next Mm -hmm. most crucial member of that greatest American generation, won eight. Courier won four, and Michael only won that one, Mm -hmm. sadly for him, because he had many more chances thereafter. But that doesn't mean he didn't have a Hall of Fame career, because he quite clearly did.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you said Agassi. So, you know, when you consider Michael Chang and Jim Courier and Andre Agassi, along with Pete, Um, Can you talk about the state of American men's tennis in the 90s with these four leading the way?
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was. I I mean, we've had some great generations of of players in in the history of American tennis, but none quite like that group. Because, again, the 14 majors from Sampras, the eight from Agassi, four courier, one for Chang, backed up by Todd Martin and Mal Washington, some very good players. It was a it was a very exhilarating time for American fans because their personalities, Warren, as you know, following sports as closely as you do, their personalities were so different. Mm -hmm. Sampras was was so composed and dignified and contained his emotions, and Agassi was reinventing himself every couple of years. A very complicated personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Courier was highly charged hard edge just a a great competitor and Michael Chang's personality more like Pete's but they all they they all contributed to that American landscape at that time and it was it was a wonderful thing for American tennis fans to see especially those four thriving across the 90s and uh, meeting on so many important occasions.
1: Steve, why don't you give us a little bit about your background before we really dive in? to uh pete's story tell us about uh how long you've covered the sport of tennis and um why you chose to write the book about pete
2: yes well i you know what warren i grew up as a kid i loved baseball initially i still love baseball for that matter but i would go to the yankee games i knew all the batting averages the eras I, i i i just followed it with religious fervor as a yankee fan as a kid but my father took me out to Wimbledon when I was 12, just about to turn 13. And that sort of changed, turned my world upside down. I mean, from that point forward, I was, I was following tennis with uh, just fervently in the newspapers every day. And whenever I could get to tournaments. So by the time I was 15, just a couple of years later, I made it my goal to become a tennis reporter. And I mm. started to do it. I, I kind of gradually made my way in to the field. I met Bud Collins and he was something of a mentor and, uh, through Bud, I met many others. I met a lot of the British reporters. So that by 1974, which was only nine years after that love affair with the game began, I was working full time as a reporter for World Tennis Magazine, and it, it grew from there. So I've been doing this really full time uh, as a tennis reporter since 1974, having broken in in the preceding years. I was very lucky to find the passion that turned into a vocation.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was it about the game? Obviously you're going to Wimbledon. Oh my gosh, I'd like to go someday. But what was it about the sport, the game that, you know, that hooked you?
2: Well, I think you 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 touch, you, you kind of got to the heart of it there. I think I was very lucky that I had seen a little bit on television Warren before that Wimbledon of nineteen sixty five when I did turn thirteen. But just going out there and you kind of knew, I, even as a teenager, I knew my father was taking me out there. It was more of a cultural experience, and he loved tennis. I, he had no idea that it was going to uh, take over my life to the degree that it did. But uh, there was just something so elegant about those surroundings at Wimbledon. And in those days, Warren, the, wandering around the grass, the outside courts was not as complicated as it is these days. You didn't have as many fans. On the ground. So you really could get around from court to court and watch your favorite players, which I did on a number of days at that maiden Wimbledon for me. And I guess the fact that my, my first big exposure to watching tennis in, per, in person happened to be at the most celebrated event of them all, it was, was maybe it wasn't an accident, but it certainly was what propelled everything for me.
1: Mm -hmm. And you said 65, so that would be, uh, as I'm looking it up, Roy Emerson and Margaret Smith?
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I loved watching Emerson. You know, I would even, in the years that followed, I would even go out to Queens Club in the um, mornings. Because in those days, Warren, Wimbledon wouldn't start any matches anywhere in any court before 2 p.m. Hmm. so hard to believe, isn't it? But they wouldn't do it. They were very stubborn. It wasn't until much later that they started moving play up till noon on the outside courts and it all changed. But I, uh, I would watch Emerson practice at Queens club in the mornings on the fast wood courts indoors. They would like to, the players love that because that gave them the chance to, uh, to, to practice in an even, on an even faster court. And by the time they get up to Wimbledon, they felt really, Ready for battle, and he—he mm-hmm. he was the first great champion that I saw perform, and I watched him beat Fred Stolle in the finals that year. And then Margaret, of course, yes, she—I went on to see her win, winning at the Grand Slam in 1970. I was there when she beat Billie Jean in the mm. Wimbledon final, and of course, I should tell you that. I was fortunate enough that I had, you know, I had a father who had moved to London. My mother still was in New York, so then I wouldn't, I would be at Forest Hills every September before I'd go back to school. So wow. I was, I was able to attend as a teenager uh, all of uh, the two biggest tournaments in the world, and and pretty much start and end my summer with a with a major tournament. Very, very fortunate.
1: That's awesome. And of course, it was Emerson's record that. Pete broke. Why? Exactly.
2: Exactly. It was Emerson's record, and and that looked like it might last longer too. And he uh, he did it, of course, Warren, in the amateur years. That's to take nothing away from Mm -hmm. what he did. But at that time, just so listeners understand, he Emerson was was an amateur, so he was allowed to play at Wimbledon and the U.S. Championships and the Australian and the French. While great pros, those that had turned pro, like Labor and Rosewall and Gonzalez were not permitted to play in those, so the, it was a divided tennis world in that sense. And you tended, if you were an Emerson or a Labor or a Rosa, sooner or later, the chances are that you were going to turn professional, which meant you couldn't play in the majors until '68. Yeah, I was going to say it all not until the, the game.
1: Yeah, I was going to say not until the late '60s did. Yeah, '68 it
2: went open, so that that changed it. But that meant that Labor, for instance, was out of it from '63 through '67. He turned pro after winning the, his first Grand Slam in 62, and he couldn't play those next five years, and not until he returned to Wimbledon, to the French in Wimbledon in 68, and that changed for Rod. So the records are somewhat skewed in that sense, but that's how it was back then. And fortunately for Pete Sampras, he was born in 71, so he was able to uh, do his best work at a time when the game was really exploding with popularity and when it was all open there was no longer that dividing line so mm-hmm. his me- his rec- his record could be measured against all the others without the complications that you had in the days of Emerson and Labor and others
1: mm-hmm. yeah you could almost say that if you really really consider it when you consider baseball hockey football basketball golf the open world of tennis is still sort of in its infancy right because it's only what uh 20 uh, 30 to 52 years old is is how long really the open tennis Yeah period you're right I mean when,
2: you're absolutely right especially when considered in light of the fact that the sports you know Wimbledon first Wimbledon played in 1877 and in the US Championships in 1881 and the others came along later, but here was all of that competition prior to 68 and many attempts made to try to bring everyone under 110 amateurs mm-hmm. and professionals and mm-hmm. make it open. But some prior attempts failed. But you're right. In some ways, the infancy, it'd be fascinating to see where the sport is 50 years from now when we're talking more like 100 years of open mm-hmm. tennis. But mm-hmm. there have been, been a lot of some bumps along the way, but largely it's been a, a, a success story all the way. Well,
1: you're right. It would be interesting to see where it is 50 years from now for American tennis, men's American tennis. I mean, when you consider Pete Sampras and what he did— his reign, if you really think about it, was really the last dominant reign for an American man. Why is that? And is there any American male player on the rise whom we should watch for? I guess we'll get that, to that part in a minute. But why is his reign really the last dominant reign for an American male?
2: You know, it's that's a difficult question to answer, Warren. i I. I vividly recall only a not that long before Pete well first Agassi and then later Pete and obviously even Courier and Chang as well but there was a kind of a widespread widespread panic in American tennis at the USTA they they started in the late 80s a player development program which exists to this day because they were concerned at that time about who was going to replace Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe mm-hmm. coming into their waning years and so the 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 concern then was my God who's who's out there now who's gonna who's gonna take the mantle from Jimmy and John, and as it turned out it was all of these guys were, it, it, and nobody really was necessarily anticipating. And first Agassi who got to three in the world in '88 that was the first big step. Chang winning the French the next year in '89, then Courier comes along and in the start of the '90s there and wins those majors. And, and amidst it all, Pete won his first. In 1990, the youngest U.S. Open champion ever in 1990 at 19 years old. So there was a an explosion of American prominence that hadn't necessarily been anticipated by the authorities. Right now, it looks a lot drier, Warren. We have some fine players out there, the likes of Taylor Fritz. and uh, if Taylor Fritz is one of them, and he just lost a five-set match to Novak Djokovic at the Australian o- Open, as did... Francis Tiafo in the previous round, we've got guys like that that linger around the top 30 and, I mean, but Fritz was the only seed we had in the field as an example. And it's really hard to know who might emerge. The main reason Warren, I believe is not so much a failure of our system or uh, it's more so the, the development of the rest of the world. Who would have imagined at one time, a nation like Serbia, small mm-hmm. country like mm-hmm. Serbia and, 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 and producing a Djokovic and, And Ivanovic was also from Serbia. And then then the the Spanish system also developed on a a scale that none of us would have envisioned Uh, with Nadal, but so many others, too. There was the prior generation with Croatia and Moya, so many fine players. So I think a lot of it is the improvement in the rest of the world. How many more countries are embracing the game and playing the game and producing first-rate players? And that was never the case up until, uh, you know, a few decades ago, it just simply didn't happen. So I, I, I believe that when we least expect it, Warren, that's when there's suddenly going to be a couple of great Americans. Because sadly, the last American man to win a major was Andy Roddick. The year after wow. Pete retired, wow. Roddick won the 2003 U.S. Open. Nobody's done it since in singles. But we do, of course, have... At the, at, while they, there's been this dry spell among the men, obviously we have a lot of great women players, sure. led by Serena Williams and her sister Venus, and so many others who've who've graced the game in recent years and are still doing quite well in women's tennis. It's the it's really strictly in the men's game that the that this exists.
1: Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, at, during their heyday, Connors and McEnroe. When they played, it was must-watch television, and it's just, at least here in the States, at least amongst my friends who are big sports fans, they very rarely, if ever, talk about tennis anymore.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that. I would say, Warren, I don't know, you'd have to tell me they're your friends, but I would have thought they would have felt similarly to the way they felt about Jimmy and John when Sampras and Agassi would play. That was also another magical Well, ride. Yes, it they did
1: they did different rock personalities. Them, yeah. But
2: you're right. It it's it's we need that in, in this country to be sure. And I think we will find it again. I just think it may take ooh, it could take five years or more uh, for that to happen.
1: Well, you know, um let let's let's take a look at uh uh Pete and his career and Um, Let's start with this. One of the things you mentioned in your book in regards to Pete's junior career, and this sort of works into what we were just talking about, um, was that his coach, Pete Fisher, was preparing Pete, it seems like, for a professional career. So Pete didn't fare very well as a junior as far as winning tournaments were concerned because he was always playing up in age. Can you talk about that and how it did help Sampras conquer the pro tour?
3: Yeah, that
2: you're so right. I mean, Pete Fisher had had this big picture philosophy and he wasn't that concerned about Pete Sampras's junior results. He kept talking about he kept making him think and dream of these large goals in the future. The idea was to shape his game. And so one of the crucial developments that took place is when Pete Sampras was 14 He'd had, a one-handed, he'd, he'd, he'd had the two-handed backhand like Chang and Agassi, and they changed him to a one-hander. Now that's one of the key reasons I think his junior results weren't better, is that it took time to adjust to that major alteration in his game. But the whole idea, Warren, was to, sh- to gear him for the long run, especially for grass courts at that time, and somewhat for hard courts and indoors too, but to be able to play really aggressive tennis transitional tennis where you got to the net a lot to make him into a serve and volleyer and to do that as a player with a two in it back and was always going to be trickier. Mm-hmm. So that that's really what happened. And I i do believe he, because I've spoken to people, I spoke to a lot of people for the book too, that they were very impressed with his game from the beginning. And there were always these, there was always brilliance there, but he didn't win matches the way say an Agassi or a courier or a Chang did at that, at that age, because he, his game was really evolving and, because the, the whole thought was always, one day you're going to be a Wimbledon champion. That's what matters. One day you're going to be, uh, your name is going to be spoken in the same breath as Rod Labor. That's the kind of language that Pete Fisher was using with Pete Sampras, and he proved to be right.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, when you were just saying that the USTA was a little concerned about who's going to be the next great American male after Connors and McEnroe, perhaps they didn't know enough about Pete Sampras because he wasn't making a big name for himself as far as winning tournaments as a junior uh, uh, was concerned. It was more like Chang and Courier and Agassi.
2: Yes, absolutely. And everybody... Spoke, they all knew that Sampras was a great talent. There was always that feeling. But obviously, in most cases, in many cases at least, the great players, they kind of start that journey with success. They get the habit. They acquire the habit of winning as a junior. And it certainly was the case with, you know, it's not that they were dominating junior tennis, those days, but they had more success more regularly because of the way they played and because they weren't going through this kind of uh, major alteration in their game. They had their two-handers, they they stuck with their two-handers, but but the whole feeling with Pete Sampras was no, we got to get him the one-hander because he's an athlete and he's going to he's going to be a net rushing player, he's going to be an aggressive serve and volley player and the way to do that is uh to get rid of the two-hander. Mm-hmm. And, and and yet they all thought as I'm sure you, you remember re- from reading it, Chang thought that Sampras's two-hander was beautiful. They all thought it was actually a beautiful stroke mm-hmm. and could have been a great but it wasn't the right match for his game in terms of the long run. Mm-hmm. So I think there was this feeling, to get back to your point, that he would get there, but on the other hand, the results were not there yet. So And certainly no one, not even Sampras himself, saw that 1990 U.S. Open triumph coming, because he was only number the number 12 seed coming in. Right. He was seen as a very gifted player who would, would do well to make the quarters But nobody saw him winning the tournament at that age. That's when his life changed irrevocably, just Mm -hmm. completely, permanently changed.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, Steve, I've worked in the golf industry for many years. And one thing I know is that golfers and their swings can be very uh, uh, fragile. Really, when it comes to instruction and a coach, a golfer only has one, maybe the mental game or a little bit in the the short game, they might employ someone else. But you wrote that Pete had several coaches at, at a young age. First, there was Pete Fisher. How crucial was Fisher to Pete's development?
2: Oh, he 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 was absolutely crucial. But he also understood Warren his own limitations. He was a pediatrician. He was a doctor. He w- you know he loved tennis. He had a great feel for tennis, but he was not a great clinician. He was not going to be the one equipped. So that's why Robert Lansdorp and some of these others were brought into the picture, because he needed people that had technical expertise. And in those men, he found them. So that part of the brilliance of Pete Fisher was knowing what he didn't know as much as what he did know, and uh, that that was a brilliant move on his part. A little bit unconventional. Uh, uh, most players, would, that's not the way they did it. They they maybe had their one key, like Tracy Austin, for instance, was a you know she worked with Lansdorf. This is the way it tended to be that you had that person you put your faith in. But Pete Sampras was putting his faith in Pete Fisher, and yet understanding that he he was going to have all these other tutors who were going to assemble his game from the strokes to the volleys to the serve. So it was a brilliantly conceived plan, and and it sort of uh, sprung from the fact that Fisher recognized his own limitations.
1: Yeah, you said that he... Well, my impression in reading your book was that he really wasn't a top-notch player, Pete Fisher, yet he understood the game, and he understood the talent that, the potential of talent that Pete Sampras had, and he got all these other people involved to help create a complete talent. Like I said, it's something... I don't see very often in golf, there was Robert Landsdorp for the ground game, Del Little for footwork, Larry yep. Easley on the volley. How does that work? Right. How could you have so many coaches and how do they all work together to, to mold and, and create this incredible talent?
2: Well, I think you know it, it it exists. You get some of that on the pro tour. Federer at Times has had a couple of different coaches, and they sort of align their views together, and these guys all, I think, spoke among themselves and made sure they were on the same page And, and obviously, they all kind of reported back to Fisher. That was also a key that, they, that there was a, there was sort of an understanding uh, that that they you know they were all thinking in a similar vein. And uh, it, it, it were, as I say, it was definitely unconventional. It's not what it wouldn't be the recommended template that you would put down, but in this particular case, it, it really worked. It worked beautifully. And you got to the heart of it with another of your comments. The whole idea was com- create a complete player, uh, because as great as Agassi and courier and Chang were, they never were nearly as good at the net as mm-hmm. Sampras. None of them had had that kind of a serve either. That's no knock on them. They were great players. But the notion with him was make him versatile, make him complete. And that's what we always used to say about him throughout his career. He's the most complete player in in tennis. And he was, without a doubt. And uh, that was one of the keys to his success. He had so many gifts to call on. Mm-hmm. And so that if he was having a, a, a not that he had many bad serving days, but w- when it would happen uh, uh, uncommonly, he, he had he had he could draw on his other resources.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, it, 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 w- it was it was remarkable the way it all unfolded.
1: You know, you wrote that he um, his second serve, you know, a lot of a lot of the players, they they sort of relax on their second serve to to make sure the ball gets in but Sampras' second serve was almost as good as his first serve. I mean, it was a powerful serve. So, talk about the development of his serve to begin with. If if I if I recall correctly, um they worked a lot on his serve and uh in a way that he would He wouldn't give away where he was going to hit the ball very early in his serve. He waited to the last second before, uh, uh, I don't want to say aiming, but before he 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 knew where, you know where he was going to hit it. Can you talk about that? Am I saying that right? Well, the whole
2: the whole idea, Warren, was to use the same toss. Most players, a lot of players, if they're going to hit a kick serve, they toss more to their left. Almost behind their head and come up and around that ball. And slice serve is out to the right, slightly out to the right. But the idea with Pete's toss was so perfect. It was a beautifully produced toss. But that the idea was that Fisher would stand out there with him on the practice court and say, okay, you know, and as after he tossed, you know, he'd say, okay, kick, slice, wide. Down the tee, you know, he 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 wanted to make sure that he could do it all from the basically the same toss, mm-hmm. which really, and that was always a, a nightmare for opponents because they didn't know where he was going. It was impossible to read a serve. There are other big servers. I mean, even Becker that were, were at least you could, you could feel like you could pick it from time to time, not Pete Sampras. It was the deception of that delivery. That was the key. And it all came from this consistent toss. So there were no giveaways. There was was nothing. He wasn't telegraphing anything. And and that that, that was really made life so difficult for the likes of Agassi. And Agassi, of course, known for his phenomenal return of serve. But he struggled to return the Sampras serve across their entire careers. And he could only hope that Pete was having a bad serving day and he'd get a lot of looks at second serves. But again, you got to the second serve. You know, Warren, this happened. This it it was somewhat serendipitous in the sense that the idea originally was not to have Pete Sampras become one of the game's biggest servers. It was to make him a serve and volleyer with a very good serve that could set up the volley. But then suddenly, in this 1990 season, when he won the U.S. Open at 19, youngest ever, it started to just blossom uh it, he can't even fully explain it but he realized he was suddenly and Brad Gilbert noticed it as well you know Agassi's coach and he, he was still a player then he he noticed the big difference in the uh, how how much bigger that serve became so that was the first step was that the first serve became so explosive
3: mm-hmm. then
2: the, then he started developing a lot of confidence in his second serve but in those early years Warren he wouldn't come in he wouldn't serve in volley that much on the second always on the first but then in the later years, as we got to the mid and late '90s, especially toward the late '90s, then he really then it became like more and more it became like two first serves it and, and it became tougher to break him because the more he came in behind the second serve, then he was just smothering you at the net
3: mm-hmm. so
2: mm-hmm. it was a pretty brutal combination i My point I make in the book is I think that he had the best first and second serve combination we've ever seen. You could look at other great big serve. Federer has a great serve. Goran Ivanisovich and Pete's time. You could, Becker, you could go back through history and name great servers, but I don't think there's ever been anybody that's blended the first and second serves and and those had so little difference in their first and second serves. And the other secret to the formula was, don't worry about double faults. The, the opponent's not going to get a lot of confidence if you hit a 120-mile-an-hour second serve and it misses by an inch. Uh, they don't feel that they have any say in the matter. Agassi once said that, Warren. He, after losing a match to Sampras in Cincinnati in 99, he said, you know, I I broke him one time, and it's just because he decided to serve a couple of double faults. And what he meant by that was I, I, I had no say. It was not up to me. And I only broke him that one time because he happened to just throw in a couple of double faults. But the fact is it was so worth it as he got into the latter stages of his career, Sampras, that he, uh, it didn't matter. Served the doubles here and there, but he was hitting so many big second serves that were like first serves that it was demoralizing to be on the other side of the net.
1: Mm -hmm. And it really started to come together, as you've alluded to a couple of times in 1990. So um, Pete wasn't playing professional tennis for many years, and he started to conquer the pro tour, I think pretty quickly. Heck, it was only three years after his pro debut that he won the U.S. Open by beating Agassi, as you said. And along the way, he had to take down some very impressive and formidable opponents. Tell us about that 1990 U.S. Open and Pete's surprising win. A win, by the way, that came again, like you said, very unexpectedly to Pete. In fact, you wrote that Pete said he would have been happy just making it to the quarters or the semis.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He would have been perfectly satisfied with that at that time. I wouldn't say perfectly satisfied, let me say, but he'd be, he'd, he'd be content. He would have been content. He was His mind was on the future. He didn't really think he was ready to strike gold like that. But the remarkable thing is he was seeded 12. He plays Thomas Muster, the Austrian, really – indefatigable Austrian left-hander kind of a a slightly you know a, a poor man's Nadal you might say he wasn't nearly as good as Nadal but he was pretty tough aggressive tough competitor and he was seeded six and Sampras beats him in four sets so that was a good win that put him into the quarters then he beats Lendl Yvonne Lendl who had been in eight straight finals and won the tournament three times in those years Sampras toppled Lendl in five sets and suddenly there he is in the Saturday afternoon semis against McEnroe. You know, Lendl's won three times. McEnroe had won the title four times and uh, Pete beats McEnroe in four sets. And then the the whole, he puts a kind of a gold coin on top of it all uh, by beating Agassi in straight sets in the final. And Agassi was a heavy favorite because he'd been in the semis the previous two years. And as I mentioned earlier, even in 88, he'd been in the top three in the world. So he'd been around the upper echelons for a few years, and, and everybody thought he was ready to win the title. He'd just beaten Becker in the samuels, and Sampras played a phenomenal match. So suddenly, here he was, a major champion in 19. And I remember him saying at the time, Warren, I didn't talk about this much in the book, but he said at the time, nobody, I've won the U.S. Open, and nobody will be, ever be able to take this away from me. Because he couldn't know then what mm-hmm. was in store. It mm-hmm. happened so fast. That he just didn't know what what, what the future was going to hold,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, then of course it led to a couple of good years, but not up to the level quite what he wanted. Ninety one, he had the inevitable growing pains that any anybody would experience, and then ninety two, he he really made some big strides. It was in the semis of Wimbledon, the finals of the U.S. Open again, lost to Edberg in New York, and and then it was the year after that he started to dominate. But mm-hmm. it was understandable when you think how young he was, Warren, to that he'd won the Open at 19, he wasn't quite ready to handle the emotional baggage of such a triumph. And
1: Yeah, it, talk it, about you know that. I mean, he was the youngest ever to win the U.S. Open at 19. How did it affect him? All the responsibilities that come along with being the U.S. Open champion, you know, I guess beginning with media appearances the very next day. Um, he's no. not used to any of this. How does that affect someone his age? He, he wasn't ready.
2: No, and not— and in addition, Warren's such a shy kid. And, you know, he's still kind of shy in his way to this day. He's a very, he's a very private person. And suddenly he was under the harsh glare of the public spotlight. And that was not easy. And you're right. He had, he suddenly he's on all those shows on the morning shows and, you know, and suddenly you're getting recognized at airports in a way that you hadn't been before. And, that threw him for a loop to a degree. I, I think he understood that was part of the deal, and it, it, he was flattered by it, but it's not something he needed or necessarily wanted. I wouldn't say that about Agassiz, by the way. I'd say probably the exact opposite. I think he loved being a star. Uh, Pete had to grow into that role. So it was tough. That was part of the reason why he had to struggle to recapture the magic that he'd produced at that 1990 Open, because it was not an accident, Warren. Yes, it was ahead of schedule, no doubt. It was kind of tennis we, we wouldn't have expected to maybe see from him until two or three years later, but it was no accident because you don't beat that, that those, you know, you don't beat Lendl, Mackinac, Agassi in order unless you're a great player. And that's what Lendl said to me in the book. He said that we, that's when we found out what kind of heart he had, you know, you to beat the three of us back to back to back was really, was a major statement.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanna I wanna stop for one second here because I think this is really important. You said that Pete's a shy guy, and um, you know, I uh uh you know, he's not a part of this podcast. However, I want everybody to know that what your you wrote this book and it was with Pete, with Pete's permission, and you spoke to Pete. The this isn't you um, talking to other people about Pete. Pete is a part of the book. Yeah, you did speak to other people about Pete, but Pete is also a part of this book, and he gave you, you know, carte blanche to write this book. So this isn't you guessing and looking at Sampras's career from the outside. You spoke to Pete about all of this. Talk about that, what it was like to, to well, how you went about you know, getting Pete to participate, why you wanted to write the book. Talk about that a little bit.
3: It's
2: interesting, Warren. I mean, I I, I admired what he was doing immensely through that whole era that we discussed this, the, uh, through the 90s and I, I loved his professionalism and his self-effacing nature. I thought he really represented the game very, very well and I, I felt like I was one of the people that was maybe most attuned to what he was doing and I had many interviews with him especially over the say the last 7 years of his career 7 8 years more so than the early years I did some in the early years started as early as 92 but it picked up a lot and I'd have these interviews regularly I think we established a rapport a good rapport so by the end of his career I in the back of my mind I always wanted to do the, this kind of a book and he wrote his own autobiography with another writer a very good writer named Peter Bodo. and but that was not the kind of book I would have wanted to do. This, this to me, had much more appeal. That I could use my knowledge of what he was doing out on that court and the kind of, uh, you know, champion he was and what set him apart. And then, but then, have obviously have his input and talk to the other players as well. So I'd it, I'd been thinking about it for a long, long time, and then the, then it became more and more apparent to me, and and you know by the time I started really working out in 2018 and 19, that, that the time had come. Uh, it was a goal of mine for a long, long time to do this book.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And, back, you're right, yeah.
2: and you're right. And you're he, right. He did give me, you're right in what you said. He gave me carb- I and mean, I went to him. I wanted to be sure that he was okay with it. Uh, and he was, and he was. And we had a lot of very good, good interviews as we had always as had always been the case in the past when i wrote for him for mag- on him for magazines or newspapers so we had that background and i think we had that mutual respect and i so i was gratified that he wanted to cooperate but i wasn't shocked because i thought i knew the kind of rapport that we had built and so it was a lot of fun to get especially enjoyable was hearing him he, 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 allowing him to go to drift back in time and reminisce and then going to the other players as well, because mm-hmm. he's so self-effacing well, as I'm sure you noticed other players and he had fascinating things to say about himself, but other players were so laudatory about him. And, uh, it was, it was a nice moment. Actually, when I interviewed Lendl, Lendl said to me at the interview, at the end of the interview, when you speak to Pete again, please tell him I said hello. Mm. That's, you don't get that. that. That rarely happens in this business. And I did. I passed that message along, and Pete was very flattered to hear that. I'm very happy to hear it. I mean, it's the, just the kind of respect they have for him. Uh, it was it was across the board, whether mm-hmm. it was Lendl or Rafter or even Isovich, you name it. And I think that also made the book, I hope, more compelling. The combination of San Francisco's own reflections, which were remarkable, and then what his rivals had to, how they saw him uh, from across the net and and, uh, through the years.
1: Okay, so a short while after he won the Open, he got a new coach, Tim Gullickson. Why did Pete need someone new? How did they meet? And tell us about their partnership and just what did Tim Gullickson mean to Pete Sampras?
2: Well, he was a one, he was, it looking at in terms of pete's professional years as opposed to the junior years and the upbringing and getting him ready to play pro tennis which was obviously pete fisher's doing pete fisher was not going to be out for a variety of reasons was not going to be the guy to be out on the road with him and be his his coach his professional coach so pete Sampras had, had some other people he'd worked with you know when he won the u.s open and Joe, a guy named Joe Brandy, and he, we'd met at Balitaries. But to make a long story short, he—it was really kind of set up by Tim's twin brother, Tom, because Tom, in the fall of '91, he was thinking there had been some thought that maybe Tom would work with Pete, and he went and spent a day with Pete, had a long lunch with him, and Pete was very interested in having Tom coach him. But uh, it, Tom was not really available at that point; he had other commitments to the USTA and elsewhere, so. It was the twin brother Tom who suggested Tim, hmm. and from the beginning, uh, it, Pete Sampras and Tim Gullickson hit it off. They were it was a good stylist. it was a good personality match, and obviously, it, uh, so much of the good the, the hard work of shaping Sampras' game had been done, but he now needed someone to help help him, you know, with the right game plans and the the life on the tour. And Gullickson had been a top fifteen player and a finalist with his twin brother in the Wimbledon doubles. So he'd, he'd had a great deal of experience out there, not to mention he'd already established himself as a great coach, including working with Martina Navratilova mm-hmm. in the late 80s. So Tim was just the perfect fit for Pete Sampras. And, their pers- you know, he was more gregarious, more outgoing, but they just got along beautifully from the beginning. And from a tennis standpoint, it was an ideal marriage.
1: Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, Pete didn't win another major for a few more years after – uh, Nineteen ninety, he made a couple of finals though, but he didn't come out on top. And while no, he just
2: a, he yeah. made he made the final of the ninety two U.S. Open, that was the closest call, and that, and he was very upset. That was a kind of a career altering moment too, because he was very upset with himself, even though he'd been kind of sick overnight and had been an IV and hadn't been feeling that well. He never used that as an excuse. He felt like he didn't fight the way he needed to fight through this loss when he lost to Edberg in the ninety two U.S. Open. So. That also was one of the crucial developments leading because Tim Gullickson was, was right there with him and uh, coaching him there that day. But then that set the stage for the great years ahead. Yeah, and
1: you said that that final helped to shape Sampras for years to come.
2: It's very rare that a player I think will have one match that, that penetrates the way, a loss that penetrates quite to the degree that that one did and that's because he just felt like it was he, he, he had let himself down in a way. He didn't surrender. I think he's being a little hard on himself, uh, Warren, because it's one of those matches that it's so often the case where the two players split the first two sets in a best-of-five and go to a third-set tiebreak. And if Sampras wins that third set, most likely wins the match. But he lost that tiebreak and went down 6-2 in the fourth. Edberg kind of pulled away from him in the fourth. And maybe he... Maybe he lost a little of his heart in the fourth, but he was mad at himself, mad or just more so disappointed in himself. And he kept thinking about it and dwelling on it. And and, and I think all of that self-criticism was was invaluable to him because I don't think it was any accident that then his biggest, most dominant phase were the six years that followed. He mm-hmm. goes from losing the U.S. Open to Edberg in 92 to being when he was three in the world. To uh, six straight years as the number one ranked player and winning majors galore, starting with uh, with Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in '93. So, that was a pivotal moment. As was just the the impact of Gullickson, the growing impact of Gullickson as his coach.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, '93 became number one in the world. He put his stamp on the game. He finally he arrived, and like you said, it'd be quite some time before he would be. Knocked off his perch. Talk about the importance of being number one and how Pete's game had evolved into the best game in the world.
2: Yeah, I think Warren, it it it, it was pretty much there already with Gullickson's help in '92 because he won five tournaments that year and semis of Wimbledon, finals of the U.S. Open. He was playing beautifully, but it was more the mental toughness that needed to kick in. And again, that Edberg loss was shattering, but in a way it was a good experience for him to endure. And then the maybe the most crucial match of his career was winning that Wimbledon final from Courier in, in nineteen ninety three because he wanted that title so badly. And here it was almost a three full years since he'd won the ninety US Open and he he just couldn't tolerate the the, the notion of another defeat in a major final. And he beats Courier in four sets in that Wimbledon final, and I think he felt like that win. He, he said he told me that that winning that Wimbledon was actually more important than winning the first U.S. Open.
1: Yeah, why? I, then, I, I, have that, that, I have that I that question here. Why was that win so much more important than the nineteen ninety U.S. Open?
2: Because by by then he knew what he really knew what he was doing. He knew what he was made of. He knew what he wanted much more than he did in ninety and now he was expecting it of of himself Warren now it's like okay and he would taken the number 1 ranking away from Courier in April just a few months before he had beaten Courier in a final on the ATP tour and then that put him ahead of Jim in the rankings and that was an important step and now he just he wanted to validate that and he just he and the majors meant so much to him he was one of the first players to to speak out so openly about winning majors and and that quest to break Emerson's record. That was a constant topic uh, with Sampras in in media circles. So he just wanted to, he wanted, he believed that he belonged. And that's why I think that Wimbledon 93, while the, 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 the 90 open was a pleasant surprise. The 93 Wimbledon was validation. And from there, I wouldn't say he relaxed, but he developed this, this this unmistakable inner belief, quiet inner belief that he never really lost for the rest of his career, because I think he sensed coming out of that Wimbledon that the game was going to be people were going to it was really going to be his game. He was going to be the dominant force in the game for a long time. And indeed, he was, as the six years in a row uh, at, at the top uh, clearly uh, uh, prove.
1: Mm hmm. You know, I got to go way back uh, to the beginning when you and I first started talking and I suggested and, and, you know, about Pete's short reign um, as the all-time leading winner when it comes to Grand Slam tournaments with 14. And I got to ask this question. How big a stain is it on his career that he never won the French Open? And for our listeners that really don't know, tell us just how different the game is at Roland Garros, a clay court as opposed to a grass court or a hard court.
2: Yeah, well, I I don't think it's a big stain because it's balanced by seven Wimbledon titles, five U.S. Opens, six. the, The key numbers are five, six and seven. Mm-hmm. Five U.S. Opens, six years in a row, number one, seven Wimbledon. So I think it balances out. Yes, he would definitely have liked to have won the French. Frankly, I think he was capable. And I think if he, had been, if he had made it the main priority and perhaps been willing to sacrifice one of those Wimbledons in one of those years in the mid-'90s, it might have happened. But it didn't. But to get to your point about the, the describing it, clay is the slowest of those surfaces, obviously. And in those days, the grass was much faster than it is now. So it really complemented Sampras's attacking style, and the hard courts were pretty quick as well at the U.S. Open and and also in Australia. So uh, yes, the clay is, is kind of a standalone surface. I mean, in most of the majors obviously there's a long clay court circuit, and Nadal loves that every year. But the re- the other majors are all played on other grass uh, grass or hard courts. And in those days of Sampras's dominance, the Wimbledon, would no doubt, it was it was quicker the court because of the way the courts were kept. There are a lot of reasons, technical reasons for that that aren't worth going into. But that it was it was really fast and and it suited him. It suited him to the hilt. So I think there's a lot of there's, there's a lot to chew on there. Some critics would say that he needed the French, and no doubt that Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, they've all done it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a little bit. It's a little bit more. Uh, there's a little more sameness these days to the services. They, they, the players don't have to necessarily adjust as much as they did in Sampras's day to not only playing styles but the courts and the balls themselves. It's more the word that Sampras's former coach Paul Anacone, is often used as homog- It's more homogeneous, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, so the, all of all of those things must be considered. But I think he de- he balanced the scales with his. He also won five ATP Year End Championships, which was a big title to win. You know, so there was so much in his record that compensated for the disappointment of not winning at Roland Garros.
1: You know, you know what amazes me more than the fact that he never won at Roland Garros is the fact that he never even reached the finals. That that's you know, as I went back and I looked, I said, "Wait a minute, he never even made it to the finals there." That's that's very surprising to me. You would think that just the law of averages would have said he would make it to the finals.
2: Yeah, it's true. There are some factors, like the, the year that he did get to the semis in 96, you know, he had a string of five-set wins, and then he was playing Kafelnikov, the Russian who only beat him twice in his whole career, and he, it was a brutally hot day, mid-90s. And those are the days where he, he liked Djokovic today. Those are the days that he liked, liked the least. He really was somewhat, he put a hat on, and it, he was really uncomfortable, and he had some, you know, he had a he had to deal with thalassemia throughout his career, which was kind of a sapping, you know, a part of his heritage. And it just was, it was very difficult for him on those brutally hot days. So mm-hmm. I honestly think if he would have beaten Kafelnikov, that was a golden opportunity. He would have played Michael Stich in the finals, the German, and... Mm-hmm. Steek gave him a lot of problems but they they would have played a very fast paced match. It wouldn't have been typical long draining clay court tennis, but the problem was he lost a tie break to Kafelnikov and then the air went out of the tires completely and he just was exhausted and and he lost in straight sets. So it is surprising. It is surprising and uh but he didn't put the emphasis to him every year was on Wimbledon. That was what he was always thinking about. Mm-hmm. The first half of the year was winning Wimbledon, and 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 maybe he was never able to put quite as much emotional energy as much emotional energy into winning the French as as he might have. Because I think that he could have won it in '94 and he could have won it in '96, but he lost to Courier in the quarters in '94, and then that match to that I just mentioned. So uh, the op- I think if he would have known Warren, he could have said to him, "Okay, uh, you know, you may never." you've got to do it now. If some somebody, if somebody had, could have put him in a time capsule and said, look, this is how it's going to play out. So you've got to go out. I think it might've happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just think he thought that would be his thinking in the mid nineties was there, there's more opportunities to come. I'll win it. Then he started by the late nineties. He put too much pressure on himself to win it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, it, and, and he did worse as a result. It just was not it didn't work out for him, but that's partially the his style of play, which is so much better suited to faster courts. And there was a bigger difference in the way those courts played in those days than it is today. So in other words, today, I don't think it's all that difficult for Nadal, Federer, Djokovic to make the transition from the Roland Garros clay to the Wimbledon grass as it plays today. It's not as tricky a trans. Uh, transition as it once was
1: Mm -hmm. another thing that surprises me when i take a look at his career is the fact that well in 93 he won wimbledon in the u.s open and then he won a third major in a row the 94 australian open and what surprises me is that's the only time he won three grand slam events in a row how tough was it during his heyday to win multiple championships in a row?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, listen, it comes it's it's it gets back to what I was saying earlier. You had you had such a different types of players. It was you there were maybe more dangerous moments along the the journey of a fortnight at a major to get through than necessarily is the case today. The other thing to remember is that yes, has had a couple of streaks of 3 but he hasn't been able to pull off the four in a row. The only one of the current group that's done it is Djokovic managed to do it in 2015 into 16.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He won. He did win four in a row, not in the same year, but over the course of the two years, he got four straight, which was a phenomenal accomplishment by, by him. But it mm-hmm. is, it's hard. And of course, the key to it, Warren, was not winning the French. I mean, right. that was always going to limit your chances of, of getting the three in a row because that was always getting in the way. I think, it, it, you know, it, there, there were some stages where it could have happened. I mean, certainly could have been more years that he won. He he, he he had a bunch of years where he won two majors in a year and not three. That could have happened. But, you know, a couple of tough losses like the one to Corda at the 97 U.S. Open. And Peter Corda was a very flashy left-hander. He, was, he beat Sampras in five sets. And had he not, if that had not happened... Sampras, the, the draw it was wide open for him to beat anybody left in the field that year. So that's 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 just that's the way it unfolds in tennis. But it's it's a it's a it's a good question. But winning three in a row is is never an easy feat, and even for <laughs> the even for these prodigious champions we have today with, with Novak and Rafa and Roger.
1: Seven Wimbledon championships. To you, in your opinion, which one was his most impressive, and why? That's
2: a that's a very good. Well, I would say, I would say the '97. He didn't. Play, it's not that he played any great players, but he lost to serve only twice in the in the tournament. That was a standout. Uh, you know, broken have you served broken two times in seven matches is pretty remarkable. And and the other one I thought was '94, where he kind of waltzed through the field, lost one set to Todd Martin in the semis, and beat Ivanisevic. 76766 six, love in the finals and even this which was his most fearsome grass court rival they met again in the finals in 98 so i think those two stand out to me 94 and 97 and this from an emotional standpoint not his best playing wimbledon mm-hmm. but his most most admirable was the last one because he had that injury to his leg and he was getting injections before each match that so would wear off by, you know, after about 75 Mm -hmm. minutes, and he somehow managed with his parents in the stands to beat Rafter in the finals, and that was for his record-breaking 13th major at the time. Uh, And, of course, he added the one more at the U.S. Open in 2002, but that one was very special. But I think from a playing standpoint, the two that stand out to me for excellence were 94 and ninety-seven.
1: Okay, same question for the U.S. Open. Five times over the course of his 15-year career, he won it. So which of those five championships, to you, were his most impressive?
2: Well, I'd say I'd have to say the first and the last, because uh, we we touched on the fact that it was so unexpected, Warren, what he did in 1990 to beat that trio of great champions there in Lendl mcenroe Agassiz, And then... The last one, because he'd gone through two years of anguish, he hadn't won a tournament since Wimbledon 2000, and it was getting harder for him to be motivated because he'd broken the record, and there were a lot of factors in there, and people were writing him off, and he, he didn't like that, and who would, what prideful champion would, and then he came back very much against the odds, he was a number 17 seed at that last US Open, and by then we had 32 seeds, which was not the case when he started his career, but... Uh, when we only had 16, but he, he managed to, to beat Andy Roddick, a lot of, a five set win over Greg Ruzetsky, which was the key to it all. And then that eventually led him, then he beat Tommy Haas, who was which was a very good win and Roddick in the quarters who'd beat him in their two previous meetings. And finally he beats Agassi. So it was in the finals, uh, this time in four sets. So it was like bookends warranted. Mm to win your first major over Agassi in New York at the U S open your country's grand slam event. And then to close your career, which nobody knew would be the case. But when he took many months before making the decision in many months into 2003 before deciding finally to retire, but that turned out to be his last match. And I I think that last open, I guess I'd even put that on a higher plane than the first one, because it was, it was so gratifying Mm -hmm. to silence the critics and to, to win another major again.
1: Mm -hmm. now he only won I say only won my gosh he only won the Australian Open twice and I want to go back to 1995 Um, in Australia it was an emotional time for him it started out with very high hopes at the Open but it wound up being a very Pivotal time. Tell us what happened in Australia. Certainly, a career and life-altering moment.
2: Oh, was it ever? Was it ever? Well, Warren, that of course was not. As it turned out, was not one of the victorious victorious years. The two that he won were he was, but he was the defending champion in in ninety five. He'd won it in ninety four over Todd Martin. He would win it again in ninety seven. But here he is in ninety five. Yes, he's coming back with high hopes. He was clearly the best player. He'd been he was already the, you know, coming off great campaigns in 93 and 94 building up his his supremacy as the number 1 player in the world and fully expecting, I think, to win the this tournament in 95 in Australia. But then his co Tim Gullickson collapsed one day in the locker room. He had an odd incident they had to take him to the hospital and turned out that they they were they were pretty certain he had brain term, tumors which he did, but it cast this pall over the tournament. So what happened was, Gullickson was in the hospital. Pete was going to visit him. Then, then they, before he played Courier in the quarterfinals, before Sampras played Courier, they all went out to dinner the night before, you know, just to to wish Tim well. And Tom, his twin brother, was going to fly back with him. And it was just all sort of a show of strength among a small group of people in the tennis community, including Sampras and Courier, you know. Uh, to, to sort of wish Tim well on his journey home, but t- obviously Sampras was very worried, and they all were worried. They knew that it was bad news coming because of what the doctors were saying in Melbourne, Australia. They couldn't, they had not made the full diagnosis, but they, through their tests, they were pretty sure what was going on. And the Gullickson uh, you know, did fly out, and then during the Sampras Courier match, Courier wins the first two, the Sampras comes back and wins the next two, and then early in the fifth set, a Somebody yelled out, you know, do it for your coach. And Pete was telling me for the book, he'd, it, that's not what really triggered his tears in his mind. It was more, I think it was more the buildup, more what mm. he was feeling going into it. And the fact that he was thinking about Tim, his mind had been on Tim while he was playing this match. Mm-hmm. He was now flown home. And so he broke down in tears and Courier ended up looking across the net at him and saying, we can do this tomorrow, Pete. And just, at the time, it might've seemed like kind of a wisecracking comment from Courier, but it really wasn't was very well intended, and the whole idea was he wanted to snap him out of that sad state where he could, where he was having to serve his way through tears and be able to get back into the moment and finish the match, or else conceivably the umpire would have had to start imposing point penalties on Pete. Courier didn't want that to happen, and it ended up doing its trick. When I say that, I mean it worked. It did snap Pete out of it, and and he ends up coming out, winning that fifth set and winning that match. One of the more poignant moments in his career, and that he shared with Courier, who was really quite a good friend of his. Especially, you know, they'd been especially close in the earlier years before they started battling for number one in the world mm-hmm. and doubles partners. And but that was really a, a moment unlike any other that he had his career. So the fans are watching him play this match. This man, that the the ultimate in composure. They, one of the most composed he was a players I've ever they seen. Thought
1: He was a robot.
2: Yeah, they thought he was a robot, and they found out he wasn't. And in that sense, it was probably a good thing that he went through that. The good thing that fans could understand, he's a human being. He's not a robot. Just because you contain your emotions doesn't mean you're not feeling a lot. And he showed them that night and then won the match, beat Chang in the semis, and lost the finals to Agassi after winning the first set of that final. So it was a pretty remarkable journey. And, and then, sadly, you know, Gullickson struggled through the rest of that year into 96, and then he passed away from the, the brain tumors in the spring of 96. And so, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a tough period in San Francisco's career because Gullickson was on his mind a lot. Anacone took over the reins. Paul Anacone took over the coaching role and did a magnificent job. But uh, he was in constant touch with Gullickson and when he won the '95 U.S. Open later that year, after losing to Agassi in Australia, he beat Agassi in one of the most critical matches of each of their careers and won the U.S. Open. and And looked into the camera, which was sitting there by his chair at the changeover after he'd won it. and And he greeted Gullickson, who he knew was at home and and you know unable to be in New York. And he just said something like, "Hey, Timmy, you know, we're going to play some golf in a couple of days." And that, that was that was a very nice moment, too. As he explained to me in the book, it was not premeditated at all. He saw the camera there, and, and it was sort of hanging over his chair, and he just decided to to talk to Gullickson. Mm-hmm. So that was a remarkable period in his career, Warren, no doubt about it.
1: Mm-hmm. And after that, and understandably, he struggled some. He wasn't consistent. But all that changed when he got to England. His year, of course, as we said, got off to a rough start, excuse me, Um, lost my, oh, he turned it around here and wound up finishing the year on a high note in New York. Talk about the final two Grand Slam events of the year, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, and just how he was able to overcome all that had happened.
2: Yes, I think that he, 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 it, it, he got used to the idea he realized that that Jim Gullickson was was I don't want to say gravely ill, but very seriously ill. And he and he, he he stayed in good contact with him. And then meanwhile, Paul Anacone took over in Australia after Gullickson went home. So he had Paul Anacone on the road with him, who was another perfect match personality wise. You know, he just was a very calming, perfect kind of personality. He didn't overcoach. And and Anacorn was also in touch with Gullickson on the phone, getting advice from him. And it worked out really well. And I think Sampras adjusted to a very dire situation. So he was able to get his mind on his tennis. And he did lose in the first round of the of the he had a tough draw, top 25 player in the first round of Roland Garros, and lost, but then came to England and. He ended up winning that title over Boris Becker. I think it's one of the better Wimbledon finals he ever played
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: The I, I, it, as a final. You asked me about tournaments. I said 94 and 97, but the Becker match was spectacular tennis on his part. And Becker had just come off a big win over Agassi, and Becker had not beaten Agassi since the summer of 89. It was a long stretch, and that was a big surprise. And then Sampras beats Becker, and then this— Agassi just takes over the summer, Warren. He wins everything in sight, every hard-court tournament, so that by the time he comes into the U.S. Open final against Pete, he's won 26 matches in a row, and he'd won four titles in a row in the hard-court. So he was now, the once again, the, the the clear favorite. But Sampras rose to the occasion and beat him in four sets, and it was a really important because it, it propelled him onward, for sure, into the coming years and and sort of reinforced that, deep inner confidence he always had and it shattered Agassi who for the next couple of years I mean he mm-hmm. couldn't get over the fact that he'd been so dominant over the summer but that had the biggest match of one of the biggest matches of their careers and certainly the biggest match of the year for both of them for many reasons Sampras was the one who who stepped up to the occasion and played his best tennis and won so that was a great summer you know he won them both in 93 also but I think winning the two in 95 was a a larger accomplishment considering what was going on in his life.
1: In 2000, Sampras won his seventh and final Wimbledon. And this championship meant so much. He broke Roy Emerson's record, as we said, for most Grand Slam titles with 13. Talk about that, I guess you call it Fortnite. Take us through the Two thousand Wimbledon and Pete's road to victory, the thirteenth Grand Slam title of his career.
2: Yeah, it was it was against the odds in the sense that he, you know, in the second round he got hurt and he had to go do an MRI. This was around the ankle area, the shin. It was it was very painful. Uh, they did an MRI and the doctors gave him the go ahead to compete, but he was really in. in it was it was very difficult. He'd have to keep getting. Couldn't practice from that point on until maybe it's one light hit before the final. So almost all those matches through the rest of the tournament, no practice, days off, just you know tormented by this and wondering at times if it was worth it to try to keep playing. But he did. So then he makes his draw opened up and he gets to the final. And he his parents came over to watch. And here he was going for the record, but he's got to go through Pat Rafter, who was who one. The 97 and 98 U.S. Opens, it was a great player, a great serving volleyer from Australia. So that was a big step up to have to play Rafter after all the guys he'd played previously in the tournament. Another league altogether. But he he managed to make a a really spirited fight from behind after losing an agonizing open set tiebreaker. He came from 4-1 down in the second set tiebreaker with Rafter serving. It looked like it was over. And Sampras won that second set tiebreaker and eventually beat him pretty soundly the last two sets and one at six, two in the fourth. And it was, a it was, it was, you know, he broke down into tears. That was another tearful moment because mm-hmm. he walked to the net. He was fighting the tears back. And then it was, it was dark. It was on the edge of darkness a couple minutes before nine o'clock. And his and he went up and greeted his parents in the stands. And that was what a way that was to win a seventh Wimbledon and a record 13th major with your parents watching you in person for the first time, First time they got to see him win a major in person. So that was Oh, really, that.
1: wow, that's awesome.
2: That was, that was a singular moment for him. And his fiance was with him there that day, too. So there, there was an awful lot uh, go, you know, that went into that fortnight. But I think he was so relieved more than anything that he'd somehow managed to to come through because those injections would only last a little over an hour, maybe 75 minutes. These matches are going two hours, sometimes closer to three. It was not easy because he'd have to play his way through a lot of pain, but that's exactly what he did.
1: You know, Steve, your book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, has so much detail and so many good stories in it. I encourage everyone, whether you're a tennis fan or not, to get this book. It is just a terrific and easy read. And I we can't go into every single detail otherwise there's no reason to get the book but i do have (laughs) i do have a couple more questions here for you sure beginning with the 2002 u.s open which is you know his final grand slam title and we had alluded to it, talked about it earlier. What a nice bookend. His first ever Grand Slam win is the U.S. Open. He beats Agassi. His last ever Grand Slam win is the U.S. Open. He beats Agassi. And the cool thing is, is that it was the last match he played. He didn't officially announce his retirement for another year. But why did he decide to walk away from the game after that U.S. Open? I mean, he was sort of still at a young age. I mean, it's not like he was nearing 40 years old.
2: Well, it's very different. Obviously, things have changed a lot in the sense that we're, I mean, all of us, we're watching these three guys today, and, you know, I mean, here's Djokovic born in 87. Nadal's going to turn 35. Djokovic is going to turn 34. Federer is getting dangerously close to forty, and uh, he'll, he 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 uh, he will be forty later in the year, and they astound us with that. But in, in in Pete's era, the the common time to think about leaving was really much closer to thirty for him and Becker and Edberg mm-hmm. and so many great players. You kind of got to thirty, and it's not that you thought you were necessarily through, but it it was going to be downhill from there. That was the you know that that was really sort of the that was. That was so common. That was really what what the mentality at that time. Don't be thinking about playing too deep into your 30s. And Agassi was an exception because he had some wasted years. And so he had some unrealized ambitions that he wanted to go after. And that kept him going. But in Pete's case, he had accomplished so much that those two years leading up to the U.S. Open in 2002, Warren, were were kind of wrenching and then there mm-hmm. were times when he just was not that keyed up or motivated to play especially in the non-grand slam events and it just turned into kind of a a a very difficult period for him and after he was so uh so happy to win that Wimbledon and break that record and have 13 that there wasn't there wasn't a lot of incentive the same incentive wasn't there plus he was he got married Right after the 2000 U.S. Open, so not, his, his life was changing. But what happened was, I think he took such a beating—not not a mean-spirited, but the inevitable beating that any declining player gets when they're not dominating anymore. And so, he, having not won a tournament since Wimbledon all the way to that '02 U.S. Open, it, it just built. It was a building force. It was it was it, it was not fun for him. But I think what happened was. The key to it all was that he lost in the second round of Wimbledon to a lucky loser in 2002 named George Bastl. And that was, in some ways, I don't want to use the word humiliating because I think he was above that. But I think he was really, uh, it was a penetrating defeat and one that really wounded his pride. Mm -hmm. And it really got him extra motivated, I think. That's when he, because Anacone had left for a while and now he brought Anacone back into the fold after losing that Wimbledon, and he didn't play great over the summer, but he got he kind of gradually built up his he got his engines charged again, and he came into that open and he was seated seventeenth, but he had a great run and beat Roddick in the quarters and and then toppled Agassi in that four set final, and it didn't surprise me that much that he decided to retire because the the own his standard Warren was you win the major or there's nothing else but holding the trophy, so in other words Jimmy Connors as a as a contrast. When he came back to the 1991 U.S. Open, he'd missed the year before, and he got to the semis at 39. Mm-hmm. He always says those are the best 11 days of his career. I don't think you would ever hear Pete say mm. that. In other words, if he had played on in 03 and said, I've got to see what I can do, I, I lifted my game back up again at that 02 Open. I'm going to keep this going. And if he'd gone to the semis of Wimbledon and lost, I don't think there would have been any satisfaction in that. So he gra- mm-hmm. he found, as he started, sort of took his time making the choice and pulled out of all the rest of the tournaments the rest of the 2002 season, and early in 2003, kept pulling out of more tournaments. And finally, I think he just realized, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I have nothing mm-hmm. left to prove. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm done. He just, mm-hmm. he knew in his heart he was done, and I think it was a very wise choice.
1: Mm-hmm. The gas tank was on empty. Bear with me for a moment. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, and there
2: was nothing that was going to top. Nothing would be able to top winning that fifth U S open in Oh two, you know, as the number 17 seed proving so many skeptics wrong. And uh, there could have been nothing more gratifying than that. So I, I believe that it was a decision that he'll, he'll never regret. And that the odds were that he probably wasn't going to add any more majors the way he <laughs> felt at that time. It, 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 he just wasn't prepared to go out there week in and week out and put in that kind of an effort anymore. He had, he, he had really, uh, He'd, he'd exhausted every effort. Everything that he had done for 15 years, he'd been so totally dedicated to the game that it was, it was just time to leave, and he knew it.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, bear with me for a moment here. You quote Yvonne Lendl in your book as follows. Pete got a little bit cheated by history with these three guys coming along when they did. Because of Rafa, Roger, and Novak, nobody's talking about Pete. They could have come along, not what they did, but in 30 years or 70 years or whatever. Then Pete would have been the man for a lot longer. Pete didn't get the opportunity to have everyone talking about him because these guys are phenomenal. And they are just cleaning up and not letting anybody else take anything. Of course, Lendl is referring to Rafael Naldepo excuse me, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, and Novak Jokovic, who at the recording of this podcast, just as the 2021 Australian Open is being played, had amassed the following number of Grand Slam wins. This is Federer's 23rd year, and he has won 20, including Wimbledon, eight times. This is Nadal's 19th year. He's also won 20, including a ridiculous 13 French Opens. This is Novak's 17th year, and he's won 17, including eight Australian Opens. So, as we said, his short reign has certainly affected his notoriety. And people just, I guess... Don't remember how dominant a tennis player Pete Sampras really was. He played for fourteen years and change. What is his legacy?
2: Well, I think part of his legacy his legacy will always be that you know he was he was a uh, he was the quintessential champion. He was, uh, he was the quiet. He was sort of the Joe DiMaggio of tennis. I mean, he he just he. He was a private man who just went out and did his job and did it very well for a long time with great dignity and unmatched professionalism. And I think that, that he conducted himself impeccably much the way Federer has in this era, by the way, very similar in the sense that neither one of them embarrasses himself out Mm -hmm. out on the court They They know how to conduct themselves. And so that's part of the legacy is the sportsmanship. And the other part is the, the, the way that he achieved his goals, that he won with such honor and character. And obviously I have some stuff in the book about that too, about the Mm -hmm. way he would raise his arms when he won, very understated. And that's part of the reason too, by the way, why he's underappreciated is that he has not been out there trying to call attention to himself. He's been perfectly happy to live his life with his family and stay totally away from the limelight. And uh, that's, that's just who he is. That's who he always was. So I, 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 that's, that's how I see his legacy. Great sportsman and incomparable champion.
1: Steve, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Your book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, a terrific read. Congrats on a terrific book. And again, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Warren, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed the discussion very much.
1: Anytime. There are records in sports that take decades to break. Babe Ruth's career home run record. Roger Maris's single-season home run record. Heck, in 2001, Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs. He's held that single-season record for longer than Sampras held his record for most Grand Slam wins. And who knows how long Bonds will sit on top of the career home run record of 762. Hockey. Wayne Gretzky's 894 goals has sat on top of the hockey world since he retired in 1999. How long will Kareem Abdul-Jabbar hold on to the record for most points in an NBA career? Or Jack Nicklaus' record of 18 majors in golf. The point is, all of these guys have had years, decades, to enjoy the accomplishments they achieved and have those accomplishments talked about by fans of the game, journalists, analysts, and rivals. Sampras didn't get a whole lot of time to relish in that, and that could be the biggest reason why his career is not as highly recognized as it should be. Here's a few other numbers to consider when talking about the career of Pete Sampras. He won over 77% of his matches with a career mark of 762 wins and 222 losses. He won 64 titles, and as of this podcast, that's 10th all-time. And... He was a member of two Davis Cup winning teams as well. No doubt, when talking about the all-time greats in the history of tennis, Pete Sampras has to be included. And when talking about the all-time greats in the history of American tennis, Pete Sampras sits atop that mountain. I want to thank my guest today, Steve Fling, for spending so much time talking about Pete. I highly recommend his book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. It's a wonderful insight into Pete's career and offers terrific commentary from many of the rivals he faced throughout his career as well. You can get the book wherever you buy yours. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we welcome Roger Gordon back to the podcast as we take a look back at one of the greatest games in NBA history, Game 5 of the 1976 Finals between the Boston Celtics and Phoenix Suns. And we talk about the careers of guys like JoJo White, Paul Westphal, Alvin Adams, and more. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.
0: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.